0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of Death construction In the fields of bodies burning War machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwash Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the national community radio satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is also podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Melbourne, community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, from which this program is normally broadcast, is still in uh, stage four lockdown. So I'm broadcasting outside the studio. This is a three-way conversation between myself, the studio of 3CR and the community radio satellite. So obviously there may be technical issues, there are technical issues. Uh, Our apologies, the quality may not be up to the uh, standard you're used to, but we all have to uh, do what we can in this difficult situation. You wonder what anarchy is all about? It comes from the word anarchos, without rulers. anarchist society is a society without rulers not without rules what what is the anarchist uh, mission as they say well if you want to create a society without rulers you need to understand what gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of, of people over thousands of years it's very simple inequalities in power and wealth so the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power which is a fancy word for saying sharing power um, maybe through direct democratic process, a society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. It's not a society where private, uh, you know, private, which is based on private profit, is not a society which is based on giving a centralised authority absolute power. It's a society which is based on, as I said before, devolution of power, sharing of wealth. Now, we've had a, as usual, we always have interesting weeks. Now, this program continues to go live to air by the community radio satellite to radio stations across this country, north to south, east to west, uh, in every state and territory. My is Joseph Toscano, and the whole purpose of this program is very simple, not only to bring you an up-to-date analysis of what's happening. Anybody can complain, and we are seeing a lot of people complaining at the minute, but it's also to... Uh, provide alternatives and to encourage you to become involved in activities across this country to create that new world in your heart, that world which is based on uh, equality, equality in power and wealth. Now the race is on. Did you know you were part of a race and did you know that you were a rank outsider of 3,000 to 1 uh, uh, option? Uh, do you know that There is no other way. We're told constantly by those who exercise power in this country, both at the state level, the parliamentary level, and the corporate world, that there is no other way. And the federal government is getting ready to uh, embark on a huge program, which is designed to make sure that business carries on as usual. It's about private investment for private profit. It's about outsourcing. And the race is on, and there are two main uh, players in this. It's a two-horse race, but one horse is uh, the short odds favourite. The other horse, you and me, we're three thousand to one odd. And I think always think of Mr. Stephen Bradbury when he won the gold medal at the Winter Olympics, when everybody around him fell down, and he just sailed past the winning line. Uh, but. Before even the race starts, we are told there is no other way. There is no other way. We must do this in order to ensure the survival of the human race. I know it sounds a bit, um, a little bit dramatic, but um, that's what we're told. So what does the government of the day, the Morrison-led government, have installed for you? Well, it's very simple. They have tax cuts installed for you, up and down if you're working. Well, unfortunately, these tax cuts, like the superannuation uh, schemes we now currently have, are designed to uh, assist the rich and powerful. Taxes, anybody who earns between $45,000 and 200000 will be paying the same rate of tax, 30%. Could you imagine that? The same rate of tax. We've always had an incremental taxation system that's going to be thrown out the door. So we Secondly, they're looking at a $220 billion business investment incentives. What that means is that you, the taxpayer, will be giving money to the corporate sector and the business sector in order to maintain the business-as-usual approach, which we have. Did you imagine that? Already we've got corporate welfare. We've got one of the highest corporate welfare rates on the planet through uh, you know through a negative gearing, through direct grants to large uh, corporations, but now they want a business investment incentive. So if they want to they want to stop their uh, investment strike, they want money to stop their investment strike. You know people talk about the trade unions holding the corporate sector to hostage, employers to hostages. It's the other way around. It's the employers which are holding the whole country to hostage. By investing profits outside this country. For the first time since 1970, there are more profits in Australian companies investing their profits, and they're investing more of their profits overseas than they are investing in this country. So we've got this ridiculous situation where the corporate world is involved in an investment strike and they're asking for money to bring that money back offshore into Australia. It's a um, typical gangster Tactics, typical gangster tactics. I think the mafia and uh, the triads would be very, very, very uh, happy with this arrangement. You know, we're not going to invest money in this country. You give us money, and we may invest some money in this country. So we've seen legislation being put in place to uh, provide business in- investment incentives. The third thing they're really interested in is industrial relations. It's not enough that we now have laws which specifically target unionists which make it illegal for a trade unionist, a member of the CFMEU, not to answer questions and be jailed for not answering questions. We've got legislation which gives a drug dealer who imports a billion dollars of ecstasy more legal rights than a uh, rank and file member of the CFMEU. Uh, we have uh, industrial relations laws which make striking illegal in this country. I always have to laugh when uh, we're told that, uh, you know, how horrible things are in Russia and China and other places because workers can't strike. And I think to myself, well, we've got almost the same legislation in this country where if somebody's involved in a wildcat strike and strike outside an enterprise bargaining agreement, period, an individual worker can be fined up to $10,000 a day. They don't want martyrs. They don't want people in jail, which people can rally around. They want to bankrupt individuals and uh, destroy families. So now we have been talking about industrial relations reform, which is basically removing what little power unions continue to have to collectively bargain on on the uh, for their members. Then we have what we call regulatory reforms deregulation, deregulation. Remember the big four? Privatisation, corporatization, globalisation, deregulation. Well, they're really, really going for broke as far as deregulation is concerned. If uh, their efforts to reform, in inverted commas, the Environmental Protection Act, which exists in this country, are anything to go by, you can see what's going to happen. I mean, as far as the Environmental Protection Acts, the uh, federal government wants to devolve power to the state. you think, oh, that's very nice? But it is not legislating uh, to uh, have any penalty... Uh, in legislation, the states go their own ways. And obviously states who have specific resources like can will be pushing in a particular direction in order to, say, or create jobs. So here we have the big boys, the big boys and girls. You know, the large ones. We've got the corporate world. We've got the government. We've got the law the laws. We've got the police. We've got the armed forces on one side. They've all put their uh, money on the corporate sector. And on the other side, there is you and me. That's right, public interest before corporate interest. Those who want to put the interests of the many before the interests of the few. Those who want to uh, declaw or uh, decapitate uh, an economic system based on private investment for private profit. And, we, and before the race has begun, we have the corporate-owned media and the government guild at ABC on the sidelines and social media on the sidelines screaming, there is no other way. There is no other way now. There is no other way. Put your money on the big horse. Put your money on the big horse. Put your support behind them. Support the new legislation to deregulate further. Support the new legislation to outlaw trade union activity. Support the new legislation to give businesses money for investing in this country. Support the new legislation to give the big end of town more tax cuts. And they're screaming and carry on. That there is no other way. If we look at another way, it will be the rack and ruin and the end of civilization as we know it. It's a little bit when the uh, radical Dr Maloney was elected as the uh, the Labour member, the radical Labour member for uh, Melbourne, and the newspapers then funded that the world would come to an end. Well, it didn't come to an end, and it won't come to an end. So who's on the other side, as I said? Those of us who support public interest before corporate interest, those of us who put the uh, needs of the many before the needs of the few. And what, what do we have? What do we have? Do we have the law on our side? No. Do we have parliament on our side? No. Do we have most of the major political parties on our side? No. Do we have the corporate sector on our side? No. Do we have the 1% that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication on our side? No. Do we have the government guild at ABC on our side? No. And I could go on and on and on. Do we have the police on our side? No. Do we have the military on our side? No. So here we are, this undernourished, underfed, starving, scrawny little horse, you know, waiting on the starting line, uh, to begin the race, this race, to further privatise, further corporatise, further go globalise and further more, more deregulation, so what do we offer? We have ideas, we have ethical concerns, we base our ideas on facts, not belief systems, and what what do we have? We have the concept of a universal basic income. It's a very simple concept. It's a concept which is based on the idea of providing a basic income to each and every person living on this continent so that they can survive personal disasters, national disasters, pandemics. I'm talking about economic survival. A universal basic income, which basically means that in society with artificial intelligence, increased mechanisation, and uh, less and less need for labour, that we break the nexus between the wage system and survival. In a capitalist society, uh, survival is dependent on the wage system and disposable income. So we break that nexus by providing a universal basic income. And again, we're told... No other way. You can't do it. You can't do a universal basic income. There is no other way. Well, if we look at how JobKeeper's been financed, gives you an idea of how universal basic income can be done. And if these people want to invest in this country, if they want to use private investment for private profit, well, is about time that they pull their own weight. I know we're told there are leaners and shirkers. Well, the shirkers and the leaners are in the corporate sector. And what we're suggesting... No, demanding. We don't suggest we demand that if we want a universal basic incomes, we need to introduce a few reforms, some very simple reforms that don't require blood in the street, that don't require revolution, but simple parliamentary reform. The first reform would be to introduce a one percent stock market turnover tax, a one percent. Stock market turnover tax. That would raise anywhere between 100 to 150 billion dollars per year. So every time a stock or share is sold or bought, whether there's people speculating, you know, on the, the stock market, and I'll talk about data on 1% goes direct to the treasury. Everything is computerized in the stock and share world, and it takes, it takes a click of a button to get 1% of that uh, transaction to go directly into the treasury coffers. The second thing we would, uh, what we're interested in, is we're interested in the concept of a one percent financial transaction tax. That every time there's a financial transaction, one percent goes directly to the treasury. Again, this could raise up to two hundred billion dollars. Already, we have funded a universal basic income for all Australians. The third thing we're interested in doing is ensuring that our resources, the resources that are in the ground. In this country, and we are a resource-rich country with only 25 million people, which I mention every week, that the bulk of the profits which are made from the extraction of the resources go to this country's First Nations people and to the rest of the country not to unaccountable corporations the billionaires who are lying in their pockets and laughing all the way to the bank at out of stupidity in allowing them to exploit their resources for a peppercorn rent and in many cases not paying taxes or royalties for decades, you know, because they provide jobs for 2.5% of the population. So that's one way of... That's one thing. The next thing we're interested in is we're interested in resolving the aged care disaster that we're faced with. And I'll talk about the aged care disaster later on. And we're interested in defending and extending the universal uh, health care system, Medicare, which has been under a consistent attack now for decades by uh, mainly Liberal National Party governments. The next thing we're interested in is human rights. Anybody who's seen the disgraceful behaviour of police in this, in Victoria in the last... Week or two, in the last few weeks, will understand how important it is, is to have constitutional protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. So, and the last thing we're interested in is we're interested in extending the type of economy we have. Currently, we have an economy which is dominated by a system of private investment for private profit, and a lot of this private investment is bankrolled by taxpayers' money. And we want to see the creation of a cooperative and collective sector to the economy. So you'd have a public sector, a collective and cooperative sector, and a private sector. People who belong to cooperatives and collectives don't get rich, but they are able to look after their basic needs, the needs of their dependents, and they are able to provide goods and services to the community at reasonable prices. So these are the things that we are standing for in this uh, two-horse race. So I said before, the race is on. You've got a number of choices. You can be a click activist and go click, 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 click to get RSI at the tip of your finger. You could be uh, an armchair revolutionary waiting for the revolution to never comes. You can be uh, one of these people who sees no light at the end of the tunnel, who has no hope, who believes there's no possibility of any change and there's no point in actually becoming involved in anything. You can be one of those people. Or you can be that small number of the population who believes that change is not only desirable, but possible. And that's people like you and me. So if you're interested in meeting uh, like-minded people, if you're interested in being involved in an organisation that wants to put public interest before corporate interests, well I recommend you, you look at the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website, PIPC, P-I-B-C-I dot net. If you like what you see, download the application form and join. As soon as you've got 550 members on your electoral roll, we'll apply for registration as a federal political party and put many of these ideas back into the public debate and uh, trying to destroy the concept. There is no other way. The only way forward is private investment for private profit. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscani. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. If you haven't got a printer, haven't got a computer, and you want to still interested in joining Pepsi, give me a call or write to me at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. You can go to my personal Facebook page, Joseph Toscana or Toscana for the public, and you won't find out what colour underpants I, I, I wear, but... You'll be, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff on the Facebook page. What else can you do? Oh, there are many other websites you can look at or Facebook pages. Defend and Extend Public Housing. Public Housing, everybody's business. Anarchistmedia.org. That's anarchistmedia.org. As I said, pibc.net. Uh Go to the YouTube channel. Public Interest before Corporate Interest. Public Interest before Corporate Interest. Instagram. PIPC, P-I-B-C-I-A-U-S, P-I-B-C-I-A-U-S. And the list goes on and on. Now, if you don't like any of that, don't worry, don't despair. There are many other groups and associations you become involved in. There are many issue-orientated groups in this country which are fighting for a reform and radical change. You know, they're all over the country. So, But the important thing is don't be fodder for that section of the population which exercise power today keeps telling us day after day, second after second, minute after minute, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, there is no other way. The only way forward is private investment for private profit. Let's move on. Let's move on. I'm interested, in, very interested, as I think most Australians are, especially Victorians, in the unfolding disaster in Victoria. Now, look, I've been a medical practitioner now for 45 years, and I've been broadcasting for 43 years. And it's been a long time since I've seen such a schmuzzle, a long, long time. Regarding the COVID 19 virus and the impacts it's having on individuals, uh, especially in aged care facilities and the rest of the community economically. And to a significant degree, this can be, this is an issue that's been brewing now for decades, decades. And it's based on the concept of outsourcing. And I'll go through this step by step. I'll go back to the first fleet. When the first fleet arrived in Australia in 1788, the death toll was minimal, I think less than 1%, and it was publicly funded by the English royalty, the English government. When the second fleet arrived, I think a year later, the mortality rate was over 25%. That's the mortality rate among the convicts was over almost a quarter And when some of these ships arrived, many of the convicts were just skin and bone, as well as many of the troops guarding them. And the reason this occurred is the second fleet was privately funded. It was privately funded. So how did they maximise their profits? They maximised their profits by decreasing the food supply, poor quality food, poor accommodation, overcrowding, and the list goes on and on. over 230 years later, we have the same issues as far as the aged care sector is concerned. What the Howard-led government did uh, two decades ago was privatise aged care. It gave a blank check to the private sector to maximise profit by exploiting elderly Australians who had worked all their lives and provided uh, for their families and the country. The taxpayer, it's very best. And what we're seeing now is the consequences of what's happening to the aged care sector. And the problem is being compounded in Victoria. Now, we've got a death rate, mortality rate, over 650 linked to COVID-19, over 650. Compared to the rest of Australia, that is an extraordinarily high mortality rate. And to a significant degree, that mortality rate is due to decisions that have been made by Health and Human Services as a consequence of government directives to leave elderly people in aged care facilities with COVID-19 symptoms, with positive COVID-19 symptoms in those areas, saying that if you remove them, you will actually uh, disorientate them. Obviously, if people are very sick, they're transferred to hospital. So what we have is little bubbles across Melbourne, little bubbles across Melbourne and some parts of regional Victoria where people, healthcare workers and aged care residents, are reinfecting each other. Now, look, I may be stupid, but quarantine is a very simple concept. It's about removing people who have an infection from a particular site, taking them to another site to protect the rest of the people in that environment. And I think this is one of the great tragedies of the COVID-19 crisis is the fact that we were not prepared. We were not prepared. And I'm going to hark back to 1974. In 1974, I came to Melbourne when I was a medical student. I think I was a third or fourth year medical student. And I came to Melbourne to do a, I think, a 6 weeks secondment at the Alfred Hospital with the Department of Social and Preventative Medicine. Medicine is divided into two, direct, two different areas. You've got acute medicine, you've got chronic medicine, which go together, which are hospital-based. And then you've got social and preventative medicine. And the whole concept of social and preventative medicine is to have infrastructure in place in an attempt to decrease uh, problems in a community related to specific health issues. For example, uh, the growing diabetes epidemic. Obesity in the community is an issue. HIV when he came across, other infectious diseases. And if you look at the state health budgets and the Commonwealth health budgets, less than 2% of any health budget goes to social and preventative medicine. So when COVID-19 came to Victoria, as a consequence of privatisation, which was... uh, spearheaded by the Kenneth led government as a consequence of the privatisation of the public health sector is what we had was a very powerful, centralised, bureaucratised, fossilised Department of Health and Human Services. It's an extraordinarily large bureaucracy which is exceptionally powerful. And in Victoria, if you work for that department in any capacity you do not have the right to speak to the media about any issue. And if you do, your work is terminated. So this is a department which is not used to criticism. This is the same department which is offering advice on a daily basis to the state government about how best to manage the COVID crisis. This is a department that does not have Centres across the state to coordinate contact tracing. There's a department which is based in, you know, in Melbourne, in the Melbourne CBD, and everything has to go through that department. So, no wonder we're having so many logistic problems as far as controlling the spread of COVID 19 and contact tracing. Because there is no infrastructure. There's no staff, and the only thing the department is capable of, and the way it's been structured, is to outsource, outsource the private sector any work that needs to be carried out because through years of privatisation, we now see in the Victorian health system that many parts of the so-called public health system are run, managed by private Organisations which profit from that uh, intervention in the so-called, pu- the so-called public health system in this in, in the state of Victoria. This this model is very different to the model in New South Wales and in many other parts of the country, where we haven't seen the degree of privatisation of public health system that we are seeing in Victoria. So you've got. A perfect storm. You've got a department which is inward-looking, which is centralised, which is bureaucratised, which is fossilised. You've got career bureaucrats who are being forced to outsource as much as they can to the private sector. So when a public health disaster occurs, and public means the many... When a public health disaster occurs, they do not have the psychology, let alone the infrastructure or the staff, to provide any viable solutions to the problem. And that's why in Victoria, the COVID-19 crisis has been lurching from disaster to disaster to disaster, and even when, even when, and, you know, I've got no time for the Liberal Party opposition, I mean, but even when. The opposition raised the issue of ho- hotel quarantine it, weeks before it became a major public issue as far as the spread of the virus in the community was concerned. Even then, they turned a blind eye to that criticism. They continue to t- turn a blind eye because they don't have the psychological insight or the infrastructure or the personnel to deal with the situation. And we as a community are paying the price for not having a strong social and preventative public health arm in Victoria. We don't even have public health officers on the ground. Such a small number. It's just just incredible. It's a little bit like the building industry where everything, every uh, uh, regulatory authority has been privatised. We saw the same disease, so we've seen the disease of outsourcing. Let's move another step. Now, what do Minx, Hong Kong, and Melbourne have in common? Now, I'm sure you all know what they have in common is overzealous riot police an overzealous police force. And if anybody thinks that the Victoria Police and the Australian police force is any different to any other police force in the country, let's look at these. Let's look at our history. The Victorian Police Force was formed in 1853. During the Eureka Rebellion, the 3rd of December 1854, when the Eureka Stockade was overrun by the armed forces, the English armed forces, and the Victoria Police. Once the stockade, stockaders were subdued, Victoria Police went on a rampage of murder, uh, arson, robbery, and uh, over 50 people were killed in that little rampage. Now, the Victoria Police is no different to any other police force in the world. Obviously, when there is minimal resistance to what they are doing, they come across as a very nice people. But the reality is, and we've seen that reality, is their hard-nosed approach to dissent in this country, especially... When the Legislative Council last week gave the Andrews-led state Labor government six months' emergency powers, and the Victoria Police are using those emergency powers to their fullest extent, hoping that by creating fear in the community, that people will toe the line and do and wear masks, social distancing, etc. Et the reality is, ninety-nine percent of Victorians have been obeying the instructions they've been given because they want to control COVID-19, not because they're frightened of the police response. And those people that have uh, protested against uh, what's happening, you can see what happens when r- homes are raided, individuals are pregnant, they handcuffed, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Now, i Overreaction in many of these cases is directly linked to their complicity in the spread of COVID 19 in our community. And I'll go through this step by step because these are serious accusations. When the Department of Human Services in Victoria, the Department of Health and Human Services in Victoria outsourced the responsibility for. Uh, quarantine in hotels with returned travellers, that responsibility was outsourced to private security companies who then outsourced it to other private security companies. That's the way the system goes. But these officers, these security officers, have no power to physically restrain or arrest people. No power whatsoever. That power lay in the Victorian police force. The Victorian police force, unlike the New South Wales police, made the decision that they needed not to be on site. That's right, not to be on site. And they would respond to incidents in these quarantine hotels. And over 150 times they were called in to deal with some type of incident. Now, if Victoria police, who've got the legal power, as we see, to uh, arrest people the legal power to physically restrain people had been allocated to these hotels and we know they've got enough people to allocate them to these hotels and we see the large numbers gather to disperse you know small protests in this in this state if they had done that it is quite possible that all the breakdowns in the uh, Way that the hotel quarantine system was administered would not have occurred. So I'm interested. I know there's a commission looking at the uh, hotel quarantine disaster, but I'm, uh, I'm I'm really interested in knowing whether this was a Victoria Police decision uh, not to uh, station officers at these quarantine hotels whether this was a decision by the Health Department of Health and Community Services, uh, Health and Community who said that we don't need police there, that all we need is private security guards, because questions were being asked from the very beginning when this disaster began to unfold. And let's not forget, this is not just an economic disaster. It's also a disaster which has affected many families whose elderly relatives, mothers, fathers, grandparents have died... In unnecessarily in this situation. It's affected many healthcare workers who have caught the disease because they did not have enough personal protective equipment and the list goes on and on. So there are many, many questions we need to look at, especially so that these mistakes are not repeated. It's not about you know pointing the finger at a specific individual in a specific organisation. It's about deciding, working out why this has occurred. And I'm quite confident that the major reason this has occurred is exactly the same reason that the second fleet had a high mortality rate. And the reason is very simple. The outsourcing of government responsibilities to the private sector that are involved in the business of providing this service for a profit. It's a very simple concept. There's nothing radical about it. There's nothing uh, hard about it. It's a very simple concept. If you outsource the provision of essential services to private corporations whose major responsibility is to create ever-increasing profit for their major shareholders or their major owners, then you will expect them to cut corners in order to maximise profit. It is the name of the beast. So think about it. It is, uh, I think it, 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 it's, these are questions that we need to ask. We need to ask consistently because it's important that uh, these disasters are not repeated across the country. So what am I suggesting? Well, the first thing I'm suggesting, those of you who've been look at, go, looking at the uh, YouTube presentation, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, and listening to this program on a regular basis, you know, have uh, seen me suggest the, uh, the uh, pandemic resource centre concept. But I'd like to expand that to a concept of social and preventative medicine. Now, social and preventative medicine is at the very heart of the concept of providing care to people. It's all very well having an exceptionally, uh, sophisticated acute medical service. It's all very well having uh, very sophisticated services within a hospital setting. But what we need to be able to do is create a network of publicly funded, both the state and federal level, community health centres. Now, the, the much maligned Labor government understood the importance of the provision of localised health services. And they created, in 1972-73, they created a pool of money which was given to community who held public meetings created committees to create local community health centres across the country. Now some of these centres continue to exist but they continue to exist at a very reduced rate because money has been continued to be removed from these centres and in most situations these centres have basically disappeared. So if you really want a system by which you can deal with uh, impending health issues in the community, you need the creation of community health centers. In Victoria, they've even got rid of the maternal and child health center concept, where mothers with newborn children would actually go to these centers for assistance. We've got to that situation as far as privatization is concerned. Now, a social and community health center is not just there to provide basic health services. That is already provided by the private sector and by the hospitalist degree, by the hospital sector. It would be there to provide education programs which would go to the school to uh, assist people to provide an environment by which you can actually, you can tackle emerging health problems. For example, the obesity epidemic. In the amongst children and older people like myself, uh, diabetes, the diabetes epidemic which now afflicts almost one in ten Australians, this is secondary diabetes. and the list goes on and on. Uh, pandemics. if you had a, if you had a, a series of these social and preventive centres across the state, we, I mean, across every suburb, we would be in an excellent position to deal with health emergencies when they arrive. Now, investing socially preventative medicine is a little bit like buying insurance. Now, most people, well, if you have a mortgage, you have to have insurance. I mean, the banks understand that if you don't have insurance and there's a disaster, they're going to lose out so they force you to take out insurance. And most people who are able to, take out insurance on the properties they own or are buying, or even take out insurance, you know, on their cars. You take out insurance, you know, third-party insurance in case you have an accident the list goes on and on. Obviously, some people are not in a position to take out insurance, but the majority of people make the sacrifice to take out that insurance. So in case of an emergency, you're in a position where you can survive that emergency economically. It's the same with the concept of a social and preventative medicine. It's the same concept. It is an insurance. It is public insurance. It is national insurance for the population as a whole that we have the infrastructure and people to deal with impending health emergencies. It's a very simple concept. And what we've done over the last 40 years during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, deregulation revolution, which the uh, Morrison led government wants to continue is that what we have done is we have put the interests of the few before the interests of the many. We've done that consistently, and we have done that by stripping away community and public services which had been created, not because of the largesse of government, but which had been created because of the struggles of human beings on this continent. For generations to ensure that everybody has access to the basic necessities of life. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the community radio network. My name's Jared Suscana. I'm hosting today's program. Okay, let's move on. So we've spoken about the curse of outsourcing, we've spoken about Victoria Police. Ah this is I'd like to Now, I'm sure most listeners to the anarchist will this week don't own stocks and shares. Well, I'd like to make it quite clear, I don't own stocks and shares, not even superannuation. I have no stocks and shares at any time. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a a mechanism by which to exploit people. And to me, superannuation, of a second degree, is the privatisation of old age and that you're forced to use your own money to look after yourself when you're old, although you've contributed to the community all your life. You know, through work taxes, and the list goes on and on. Well, I don't know if you've noticed the disassociation between this country's and the world stock markets and economic reality. Now, if there's one thing that the COVID-19 crisis has done, or the response to the COVID-19 crisis has done, is create an economic pandemic, economic disaster. And if you look at the, uh, the deterioration in economic circumstances around the world, you would think if the world stock markets reflect, right, reflect what's going on in the real world, that the stock markets would continue to drop. Well, initially drop, but over the since March, they've increased by, over in some circumstances, over sixty percent. And most of this money has poured into stocks, which have increased in some cases by three to four hundred percent into the great virtual giants. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft and Tesla. They've done exceptionally well as we move from a real world into a virtual world. Now, anybody who thinks that the virtual world is a replacement for reality has learned their lesson during the COVID-19 lockdown. The reality is that we are social beings. We need human interaction. We need to be able to speak to people face to face. We need to hug people. We need to be next to our family and friends. We need to have arguments. We need to laugh. It doesn't matter how sophisticated virtual reality is. It doesn't matter how sophisticated all these little things we have that keep us together, like what's happening regarding the broadcast of the anarchist world this week by the community radio 3 cm and the national community satellite across the country. The fact is that this is a poor rate alternative. It is a poor alternative to... Uh, Uh, to reality, a very poor alternative to reality. And to see the stock market for these huge uh, private corporations, they're all private corporations, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft and Tesla, to see their stocks almost doubling in the last six months, highlight how ridiculous Stock, the stock market is. The stock market is basically there. What's been happening is, as trillions of dollars of fake money, and I'll use President Trump's favourite word, fake, fake money, is pumped into the economy. Most of this money has not gone into the real economy, it hasn't gone into the pockets of people who find themselves in difficult situations as a response to the COVID 19 crisis. It has been funneled into the stock market. So we've got this huge amount of fake money, artificially elevating prices. We've got a stock market now which is completely devoid of the reality on the ground. And to many degrees, and to many people, not just myself and people listening to this program, it uh, highlights what happened in 1929. It highlights, because when that nexus between that, that link between the real world and the stock market is broken. We, see it, we saw it in the 17th century during the tulip uh, uh, tulip uh, investments in, in Holland. You know, everybody was investing in tulips, and it collapsed, and people were wiped out. We saw it during the 1929 depression, and we will see it again as the stock market has no basis in reality, and that means it's going to be a difficult situation with each and every one of us because we're told consistently, although we're in an economic recession, although things are getting worse, that things are going to get better, and they're going to get better because we're going to throw more money at the problem, more private investment for private profits. Well, if anything we've learned today, and it's very simple, is that if you Outsource services. If you use the concept of of using private investment for private profit to uh, provide essential services to the community, you will have it'll have disastrous consequences, and we see it over and over and over again. You listen to the Anarchist Wall this week broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, although I'm broadcasting outside the studios of uh, Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne because of the Stage 4 lockdown, I did make the decision to continue to do a live program. because so I think it's important that people uh, understand what's happening on the ground, and more importantly, that understand but actually have alternatives. Look, anybody can be critical. And uh, I've done my share of criticisms during my life. Anybody can be critical of what's happening. But it's not enough to be critical. It's not enough to click, 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 like, 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 like. It's not enough to sit back and say, ah, well, somebody should do something about that. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's not enough. If that's the, if that was the history of the world, we'd still be in chains. We'd still be bought and sold, you know, <laughs> in auction. Uh, we'd still have, you know, we'd still have racist and misogynist in the country. But the thing is, well, some people say, well, what's changed? But I won't go into that debate now. But uh, the thing is, things have changed, and things change because people put the effort into making those changes. People have an idea, they flesh out that idea, they throw that idea out in the community, and they build around that idea, they build organisations around those ideas. And if anybody tells you there is no other way, there are many ways, human History is littered with examples of how people have made major changes, some slowly, some gradually, some within the space of day. If there's one thing about humanity, it's our ability to adapt. It's our ability to make changes. It's our ability to survive. No wonder we're over 7 billion people on the planet today. And that didn't happen accidentally, but it happened because of our ability to adapt and survive. We are at a critical juncture in human history, not just because of climate change, which is forcing us to adapt in that region, but we are at a critical juncture in terms of the domination of every aspect of our lives by an economic system, which is based on the concept of private investment, the private profit, which is based on the concept of what's good for the gander is not good for the goose, and hell of the geese, and it goes on and on and on and on, and that's the reality. If you think of yourself as milling around a large table, and there are a few people around that table brushing off crumbs to keep you happy, well, that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in today. Why have over the last forty years? Why is the gap between the rich and the poor and those who exercise power and those who don't increase? Why? Think about it. And it's, and it's happened because of political decisions. Political decisions which have been made because those people who own the means of them, production, distribution, exchange and communication dominate the political process not just in democratic societies, liberal democracies like Australia, but they dominate the economic... They dominate the process in countries like China, which is supposedly communist. They dominate the process in countries like Russia. They dominate the process in uh, countries like uh, Iran, which likes to think of itself as a theocracy. The fact is that every aspect of life on the planet today, is dominated by an ideology, and it's an ideology, it's a political ideology, which is based on the concept of private investment for private profit. Irrespective of what clothes they wear, the facts are that decisions, major decisions, are not made in Parliament in this country. Major decisions are made outside the parliamentary process. Although we think we live in a representative democracy, we don't live in a representative democracy. And we don't live in a representative democracy because we, have a people, have allowed this to occur. So as I said before, if you want change, you need to take action. You need to meet like-minded people. You need to organise. You need to get involved in a different campaign. Some are issue-oriented campaigns. Some may be environmental. But... At the end of the day, if you're not involved, you're not in the race. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Remember, this program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. I encourage you to listen to the Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Thank you to all those people who have made this broadcast Possible, especially during stage four lockdown in Melbourne. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Don't forget... Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of Death construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10 a.m. every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist Wall this week for an up to date analysis of local, national, and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord